Hello and welcome to the Giddy Carousel of Pop, the podcast that takes an old issue of the swingerillion pop mag smash hits, usually from the 80s, although we may slide a year or two either side of that, and has a good nose through its pages with a guest. I'm Simon Galloway, and spending cash on looking flash and grabbing your attention <laughs> is Kevin Hogg. We oui, similar. Hi, Si, how you doing? All right. I'm all right, thank you. It's a, a little bit sunny as we're recording this. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a bit warm already. I'm hoping I'm going to last the distance. All right. If we see you wilting, we'll uh, send some water your way, yeah? Please do. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, before we uh, set the carousel in motion, uh, as ever, a few thank yous to those of you out there who've been buying us coffees to keep us refreshed. And, uh, well, a, a cold coffee. What is it? Is that a frappuccino? Is that what one of those I believe is? that. Yes, frappuccino, mate. I'll have one of those this evening. I'm not much of a coffee drinker, but there you go. Um, Gav, do you want to tell us who's uh, bought us some coffees? Indeed, yeah. We have four very generous, very, very lovely people to thank. Uh, We have Doug Grant, who says, thanks for transporting me back to my youth. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Doug. That's very kind of you. Uh, Laura Kelly, a previous guest on the show, says that the carousel is a repository of such joy. Very nice. Joseph Boyle, thank you for this podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Joseph. And... um, A lovely one from someone called Russ, who says, Love the podcast. I'm from the USA and so unfamiliar with Smash Hits, but in love with the music you cover. It's great being able to follow along the exploration of the hits as a complete novice. I've got to say, you know, as one of the team that put this podcast together, the thought of someone who doesn't really know Smash Hits, but still listens anyway and gets something out of it. Well, that's job done, isn't it, Si? I think it is, yeah. That's very nice to know. So uh, thank you, Russ. And uh, yeah, all of our lovely listeners. Yeah, and the two people there saying, keep up the good work. I'm feeling under pressure now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll keep it up, whether it's good or not, is up to you. Um, we'll do our best. But if you want to support us, uh, you too can do the same. It's very simple. And it can be just a one-off thing, or you can buy us as many coffees as you like. As often as you like, it's up to you. Just go to coffee.com, that's K-O hyphen F-I dot com slash pod. And chuck us a few quid to help keep the carousel spinning. Plus, you'll get a mention in our next episode. Now, I think it's about time we welcomed our guest onto the carousel. But, Gavin, who the juggins is it? <laughs> well, so in an exciting first for the Giddy Carousel of Pop, today we have a guest who not only has had his photograph in the magazine, but has played drums on a record where the lyrics mention smash it's. My family's a weird lot. My stepsister's got a horrible growth. Listens to all this Muzak shit. Read Smash Hits while she's eating a tea. To me, it sounds like bad CB. He was only 16 when he played his first gig with a fall at Camden's Electric Ballroom, supporting the Cramps. And since finishing his O-levels, he's also played with Ark, The Lovers, and is currently in Bricks and the Extricated. Recently, he's become an author. His book, Leave the Capital, A History of Manchester Music in 13 Recordings, was published in 2017. And Have a Bleeding Guest, the story of Hex Induction Hour, came out two years later. And so, as our previous guest vacates their seat, he bounds onto the carousel and asks that we set the controls of it back to May the 28th, 1981. And Si and I know better than to deny his request, for he is the most troublesome of the musical brothers of Withenshaw. It's only Mr Paul Hanley. Welcome on board, Paul. Which horse would suit you best? Uh, whenever the, the carousel, they always have one called Rosanna for some reason. I don't know why, but that's my daughter's name, so I'm going to go on that one. So okay. I, don't know, I don't, I don't know if there's some kind of tradition about what the horses are called on carousels, but there's always one called Rosanna, so I'll have that one. We'll reserve Rosanna for you then. Okay. <laughs> we, I didn't. We didn't name it after a carousel horse. <laughs> Welcome. Nice to have you along. Nice to have you along. 
Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So as Gavin says, uh, we're going back to May the 28th to June the 10th, 1981, a double A side issue with the Stray Cats on one side and Kim Wilde on the other. And as ever, if you want to read along with us, you can do just that. Thanks to the Like Punk Never Happened and Smash Hits Remembered websites, you'll find links to the scans of this issue in the show notes for this episode, along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this issue of The Hits. And you'll also find these links on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, and we'll also post them on our Twitter and Facebook feeds as well. Just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop or at Giddy Pop Pod. So, before we clamber aboard the carousel, we'll set the scene... Uh, Paul, what were you up to in May 1981? I was uh, the eagle-eyed amongst you might spot uh, what I was up to in 1981 as we get through this magazine. I was in the fall in 1981. I joined in March 1980, so I was well into my tenure as a drummer. I was still the only drummer at the fall at this time. I was just about to have my... I'd been told to move over a bit because we were getting another drummer by the end of this year. But at this point, I was still the only drummer. How old were you at the time and where were you living? Were you still living at home? I was still living at home with my mum and dad, yeah. I was uh, 17, se- turned, se- turned 17 in the February, so only just. And what about the music you were listening to? What kind of stuff? Well, some of it's in here, actually. I was I liked a bit of the Stray Cats, which is why I uh, picked the issue. Um, Adam and the Ants were always great. This, um, Dexy's Midnight Runners, I was a bit of a fan. On the, I'm only going for the contemporary stuff here. Uh, Buscocks, obviously, they were just about to split up. I think they might have just split up when this came out. So they were my, obviously my favourite. I say obviously, they were my favourite band. Yeah. Uh, but they they just about finished by this time. Uh, they'd gone a bit down of a dark road, but and they were just about to done. Pete Shelley had gone off to start doing uh, Homo Sapien. So that was what I was listening to. Yeah, where were you getting your music from? Where were you buying it? Uh, Piccadilly Records in Manchester, I think, was one place we used to go to buy records. Uh, the, funnily enough, there was a shop, uh, on in the paper shop near our house, used to sell bootlegs under the counter. <laughs> and I bought a, I bought a copy of uh, Best in Good Food, which was a Buscox bootleg. I bought that there. It was so expensive, though. I mean, they were they were devilishly expensive, them bootlegs. We yeah. had to, I had to buy it with a friend. We had to buy it between us. It cost that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did get it signed. We took it down to uh, Buscox had an office in Manchester on Newton Street, and we took it there to get signed. And Pete Shelley was appalled. He said, "How much did you pay for this?" So when he told him, he said, oh, "You shouldn't have paid that. Ridiculous." <laughs> I'm interested to know, Paul. Were you were you a reader of Smash It? I was. Yes, I will have bought this issue. I will imagine. I would imagine. I bought it every every fortnight, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was an inveterate Smash It reader. And, and had you been there from the beginning, or do you remember when you first d- discovered it? I don't actually. I've been looking. I was looking back at some of these issues, and um, I, I probably around 1980, I would say, possibly that was when it got big, wasn't it? I think it sort of became ubiquitous around the end of '79, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. The, the writing's really good in it, isn't it? That's the thing you, you forget. I'm sure you. I'm sure you don't forget because you do this every <laughs> every week. But uh, I was I was I was refamiliarising myself. The writing's really funny. It's great. Yeah, and I think the humour sort of builds more as, as it goes on, you know. Yeah. Well, I was interested to what the general attitude of the rest of the band uh, was to Smash It's. I guess if you're on the tour bus or something, people have got different music papers and stuff. With Smash It's, were people just ripping the piss out of it or did people enjoy it or...? I think so, yeah. I mean, we ended up in it, like you said before. So, no, I don't... I, I mean, I, he meant, like you say, Mark mentioned it and I'm into CB, but I don't think it's particularly uh, nasty mention, is it? It's, it's fairly affectionate, I think. I think it was fairly well thought of, because I think the you know the thing about the the enemy and the sounds they kind of 
and they'd kind of disappeared up themselves a little bit <laughs> at times. So it was it was quite refreshing, wasn't it, Smash Hits, I think? Yeah, a lot less pretension in Smash Hits. Yes, yeah, definitely, for sure, yeah. for sure. Yeah, so were you a reader of, of the, uh, the, the Inkies, the weeklies as well? Yes, everything. I mean, devoured them all, really. So one of you would buy NME, one of you would buy Sounds, one somebody would buy Millennium Maker, somebody would buy Smash Hits, and then just swap them about, but read them cover to cover, all of them. Which took some doom with the enemy in them days. <laughs> <laughs> so, as a, as a kid, so I mean, I know you're only seventeen at, at this point in May '81, but thinking back to you know earlier than that, were you always into music, and would you always go out and buy buy one of the music papers to find out about it? Well, it kind of, I was, it was kind of thrust upon me really because I had a, you know, I had an older brother who was massively into music, and he was probably buying the enemy and things like that as early as like 73, reading about Bowie and stuff. So it was always there, really. So it, I never really had any choice. Well, I did, but I just kind of drifted into it. Like everything I've ever done that I, uh, in music, I got it from Steve. He was there before me. <laughs> I mean, that, and that's, you know, that's always happened. That's been the case with everything. <laughs> but then as I've got older, I, it used to be me, my other brother, my other older brother, he was more into Elton John and people and um, singer-songwriters. And I've kind of warmed to some of the stuff he liked. At the time, it was a bit of a them and us with the stuff he liked. But as I've gone on, I've got, got slightly more affection for it. I suddenly realised that I knew Goodbye Yellow Bit Road all the way through. I heard it on something the other day. I thought, I know this album, so I must have played it. I must have nicked it off him and played it. <laughs> but don't tell him. If you see him, don't tell him. Just between us. <laughs> Gav, what were you up to in, in May 1981? So in May 81, I'd have not long turned 11. Uh, final year of primary school, getting a little bit nervous about the transition to secondary school because obviously Grange Hill had been on for a few years and I'd been watching it and I was just terrified of, you know, bumping into like a brummy version of Gripper Stebson at uh, Lighthall Secondary in Sully Hall. So I was kind of excited but also quite worried and nervous about what secondary school would be like. Um, Music-wise, we had a few discos at school and I'd just recently joined a youth club where they were on every week. So there were some big tunes, and the tunes that really take me back to those days of the school discos and the youth club discos are um, Kids in America, which is obviously, we've got Kim Wilde in this magazine, Baggy Trousers, Source of a Thousand Men, and obviously the greatest one ever, Ant Music. That, like when I hear the beginning of that, it just I can sort of see where the youth club disco happened. And in terms of smash hits, I'd not quite started buying it. Um, I'd got really into Adam and the Ants, watching Top of the Pops, seeing... Um, them do dog eat dog so the next issue after this one that paul had chosen has got adam on the front cover and that was my very first uh, one that i bought well i didn't start buying it regularly till a little while later um so yeah this was the music in this issue is very familiar to me but obviously yeah like i said i'd not not quite started buying smash it's at this point i was watching top of the pops religiously um i just started listening to radio one in the mornings as well so mike reed was doing the breakfast show then so it was all Mike Reed, Mike Reed 275 and 285 every morning with me tea and toast. And for buying stuff, I didn't have that many records. I had started buying singles, so like the old ex-jukebox singles you'd get from the news agents and some Adam and the Ants sevens. I had a little portable record deck in my mum's and uh, and I'd got Kings of the Wild Frontier on cassette. And I think the only other things I had were the, um, the cheap Top of the Pops compilation albums that weren't even by the original artists. You know, they'd be like 99p or 199 in Woolworths or WH Smith's. 
So I was very much in the building phase of my collection at that point. <laughs> I was really enjoying music, but I didn't have a lot of spare cash. And, you know, I was kind of working out where to go, you know, but I was full on into the amps. In fact, I remember going to a school disco and I really wanted a white stripe, but I didn't have any access to anything. I might have told this story on a podcast in the past, but the only thing I could think to use was my mum's Nivea because that was white. So before the school disco, I put like a big wadge of Nivea across my face Obviously, dancing under the hot lights in the disco. <laughs> and I just had a big stream of grease running down my forehead, uh, you know. But that's the price you pay, isn't it, as an ant warrior? So. <laughs> yeah, but you, you, your skin was lovely a week later, well, though, wasn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. So, so moist and fresh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that accounts for your youthful looks today. Well, thank you very much. It's not for me to say, that's for others, but you've said it. Thank you very much, yeah. What about you, Si? What was, uh, where were you and what were you up to in May 81? Oh. Uh, I was, let's see, seven and, uh, if we're going to get down to the nitty gritty, seven and two thirds mm -hmm. in May 81 oh, and got a, a old, older brothers uh, and a sister. Uh, my sister was well into um, rock at this point, ACDC and Meatloaf all the time. Uh, and she'd previously been the one who bought Smash It's and, and brought it into the house and she'd stopped getting it. So Smash It's wasn't in my life uh, at this point. The other brother who lived at home, he was well into the Beatles, which were kind of like a, a uniting uh, factor be between the three of us. And then the two eldest brothers would kind of drift in and out with like the latest kind of soul and disco and funk stuff. But also two records that made a big impression on me around about this time were um, Kraftwerk, the Computer World album, and the first Human League album, which uh, one of my brothers came home with uh, around this time. But what really sticks in my mind from May 1981 is that I went to London for the first time um, for the uh, bank holiday weekend, the first one in May. And we've got um, relatives in London, uh, an, an uncle, auntie and three cousins. Uh, so we all trooped down there with a the trailer tent on the back of the car, stayed in a campsite somewhere on the outskirts of London. Uh, but I remember we drove down on a Saturday morning and uh, we were driving around East London trying to find my uncle's road in uh, Forest Gate. And uh, we just kept getting stuck in this one-way system, going around in a, in a loop, going past the same shops all the time. There was a record shop there and it, had, it was emblazoned with posters for Adam and the Ants. And uh, when we finally made it to, to my cousin's, uh, or, or to my auntie and uncle's house, the two youngest cousins who were just a little bit older than me, they'd got Stand and Deliver and they'd worked out their own dance routine for it. Wow. And so they'd kept us entertained with that. And then we did lots of sightseeing over that weekend, uh, you know, out to the Tower of London, Buckingham Palace, all that sort of thing. And it was the first time that I saw real punks on the Mall. Uh, it was a blazing weekend, and uh, the, my, my dad's got a photo of me accidentally just kind of wandering into this group of punks on, <laughs> on the mall. And they got like a, a, a nasty looking early ghetto blaster there. It was blasting out swords of a thousand men, and they were all singing along to it, all with the, the cans of whatever they were drinking. And uh, it was a bit of a riot, and I was just kind of oblivious to it all. <laughs> <laughs> but apart from you know, just sort of like staring at all these Mohicans and stuff like that, so that that was uh, yeah, that was quite an eye opener for for me. 
Um, but looking through this issue of Smash Hits, um, a few records that I bought, you know, Kim Carnes, Betty Davis Eyes, and, and also the Squeeze song that's in there as well, um, Is That Love? So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's you know so many things that I could talk about from, <laughs> from this period um, that's all connected with holidays and cars and records and you know long journeys and things like that. But I won't bore you with them. I'll save those for another time that, that might be more appropriate <laughs> for the issue that, that we're looking at. But, yeah, it's, it's a, a, a time that, yeah, definitely into pop music and, uh, and just lots of music in general and just absolutely loving it all. So let's get stuck into this edition of uh, Smash It's Then, shall we? As I said earlier, it's a special double A side edition. Um, Stray Cats on one side, Kim Wilde on the other, and it's a bit of a battle of the hairdos between Brian and Kim, but Brian wins hand down. He's got an impossibly huge blonde quiff. Um, the uh, the front of the uh, mag also promises landscaping colour. That's the centre spread. But if you turn to that and have a look, I'm not sure anyone would have wanted that on their wall. No. <laughs> just, just some guys hanging around what looks like a deserted new wave bar or something. Not sure what's going on there. <laughs> but if we uh, turn over, look at the contents page, and it explains why it's a double-sided issue. It says, if you've already sneaked a peek around the back of this issue, you'll have twigged the fact that you're dealing with something out of the ordinary. So welcome, friends, to the first and the only double-sided edition of your favourite musical publication. In effect, you get two magazines, each with its own cover, bumper feature, song words, competition, and bit section. As soon as you get fed up of pouring over this half, just flip it and play the other side. Now, you may well ask why we've taken the unusual step of standing the entire magazine on its head. Well, there are a number of reasons. One, it's confused news agents. Two, we couldn't decide who to put on the cover. Three, in the hope that some dummies would buy it twice. Four, for laughs. <laughs> um, so that's a, a little explanation there as to, as to why they've done this. And I'll quickly run through the songs uh, or the song lyrics that are in this issue of uh, Smash It. So uh, I might have to find some music or something to go under this. So it feels like I'm uh, d- doing a proper <laughs> kind of chart rundown. But anyway, you get um, Stand and Deliver, Adam and the Ants, Norman Bates, Landscape. Don't let it pass you by. There's UB40 again. UB bloody 40, every bloody issue. UB bloody 40. Uh, Polecats, Rockabilly Guy, Rich Kids, Ghosts of Princes in Towers, that's the uh, request spot. Is That Love by Squeeze, one of my favourite Squeeze songs. That was possibly my favourite guitar solo ever. Um, Betty Davis Eyes, Kim Carnes, one that I bought at the time. Being With You, Smokey Robinson, Champagne, How About Us, Funeral Pyre, The Jam, Houses in Motion, Talking Heads, The Art of Parties, Japan, Bad Reputation, Thin Lizzy, uh, Them Belly Full, But We Hungry, Bob Marley, Angel of the Morning, Juice Newton. Uh, so that's all the songs that you get. It's uh, absolutely packed with uh, songs in this one. Uh, and also alongside the usual stuff bits, uh, you get the cartoon, um, the disco section, singles and album reviews, letters, independent bits, gigs, and uh, a few competitions and quizzes along the way. But no pen pals. No pen pals at this no. stage, no. So all you RSV pan, all you RSVP fans, I can't say that. All you RSVP fans, uh, you have to wait till another time. Sorry about that. Uh, so pass the lyrics for Stand and Deliver with a uh, nice uh, black and white shot of Adamant there. Hang on, I must take issue with these lyrics. They're not right. It's not good. Where's the Where's the da diddly qua qua bit at the end? You're absolutely right. There's no da diddly qua qua, is there? No, there's not. 
Shocking. Good fact checking there, Paul. Very good. That's why I'm here. But yeah. <laughs> You've earned your place on the carousel, my friend. Well done. <laughs> so past the uh, black and white shot of Adam Ant and into our, um, well, it's the uh, cover feature for this side of Smash. It's it's uh, the Stray Cat. Scav, do you want to tell us what's going on here? Certainly. So Mark Allen has gone to France to join the Stray Cats. Um, he's mainly talking to Brian Seltzer of, of the band in Nice. Not a bad little gig, that is it, flying out there to speak to them. Um, they've had quite a meteoric rise to stardom. They're currently number one in the radio charts in France. And the article says they've sold out the 2,000-seater tent on the beachside there. And uh, most of the other gigs that they've got on the tour of Europe and Scandinavia is also sold out. So they're very much in the ascendancy. Um, music brought him to England. Obviously, he's originally from Long Island, but he left America for the UK and it sounds like within about a year, he was very successful and in the charts and on top of the pops and all that kind of thing. Uh, Brian says he heard the Beatles at five, fell in love with them, bought a plastic guitar, got into the Stones. And um, he's saying that they even experienced their own Beatlemania in Finland when they were there recently. And yeah, he's just a pop star that's really enjoying every minute of being a pop star. You know, he's, he's loving the life. He's having a great time. I never knew that the Stray Cats were, were this popular massive weren't they yeah <laughs> i mean it seems across europe because over here i mean at this time um shaking stevens was big so i saw this as being kind of like that, that kind of rock and roll revival thing that my dad liked and so i've because of that i've never really paid much attention to the stray cats so i've got friends who whose uh opinions and tastes that i i trust and respect who really like brian setzer and the stray cats and, and it took me a while to kind of um, accept that there was something credible going on here. But, uh, Paul, what was your thoughts on, on the Stray Cats back then? Well, this, this is why I picked the issue. I love the Stray Cats. I mean, I've often said that the best gig I ever went to, or one of the best gigs I ever went to, was the Stray Cats. It was a bit later because they split up and reformed. But I saw them play at the International 2 in Manchester, which is like a scuzzy sort of venue in Manchester with you know, sweaty walls and the place was absolutely packed and we were up on the balcony. It was rocking this balcony. Felt like it was going to come down and it was was, was one of the best gigs I ever went to because they, they are brilliant musicians. He is such a phenomenal guitarist, Brian Setzer. Mm. He's just, and, and you know, I know what you mean about the, the schwaddy waddy kind of thing and the polecats <laughs> are in here somewhere, aren't they? But they, I think they were, the, if, if one can say that these were, the, the anyone's the real deal, they, I think they were. I think they were great and, you know, just a three-piece no, you know, you saw them play live. It was him with his stand-up drum kit and the, the stand-up bass and Brian, and they were just, I thought they were great. They look great as well, don't they? That photo, yeah. the three of them in the black and white. It's like a film still, isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah. It's really high-quality photographs, and they're all quite photogenic, and they just look the part, don't they? Definitely. Are, we, are you a fan of other rockabilly stuff as well, Paul, or is it is it just really the stray cats that you liked? No, well, I mean, I'd, I'd like... Sort of Gene Vincent, uh, Eddie Cochran hmm. kind of. I mean, Mark, Marky Smith was a big Gene Vincent fan. So it was kind of, you know, Rockabilly was kind of one of the streams of the fall, which is, we were talking, I was talking about this actually with my brother. It kind of came in, a kind of Rockabilly influence just before I joined. If you listen to the early fall, like the first album, there isn't really any kind of Rockabilly kind of country kind of vibe at all. But then once Mark Riley joined, they start, we start messing about with country and northern, mm. if you will, <laughs> and kind of rockabilly. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was it was a kind of a it was kind of a a thing. Gene Vincent and yeah. Eddie Cochran. So they were, I mean, they were revivalists in that way, but they were really good at it, if you like. And Mike Lee was a kind of rock and roll rockabilly guy. He was, wasn't yeah, he? yeah, he was. 
Yeah, he was in uh, uh, Rockin' Ricky and the Velvet Collars. Was he was in? Whatever happened to them? <laughs> where are they now? <laughs> where are they now? Yeah, currently residing in the Where Are They Now file. But um, yeah, he was a proper rockabilly drummer as well. So that all happened about the same time when they went to the second album to start getting a bit of a rockabilly influence. But it was only one of a many kind of strands with the fall. Never really latched on any one kind of music, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything in particular in the article, Si or Paul, that you uh, that caught your attention? It's it's your standard uh, band on tour, isn't it? Interview, I think. The, the kind of they do, they, you know, where they fly the they fly the journalist out, and he sort of gets caught in the whirlwind. There was a lot of them then, weren't they? I don't think you get that quite so much now. Maybe it's budgets. I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff about tattoos at the end, isn't there? That there is. struck my eye. You wouldn't really get uh, like half a page on t- the singer's tattoos now. It'd be like you'd be surprised if a singer didn't have tattoos now. I think, but he goes into great detail. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> They were a bit more unusual then, weren't they, Tatties? They were a bit more sign of a way, of a wastrel life as well, weren't they? They weren't, you know, you were a bit of a you were a bit edgy if you had a tattoo, I think, in them days. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, do, it does talk about the live fast, die young aspect of life in, in this, which you know, kind of says, well, this, you know, it's just kind of the the, the rock and roll lifestyle. And that's that's the life that we're living. But I like how he um, compares the success in, in England and, and how, uh, and his observations on, on English culture and, and behaviour. So he's talking about the, the bands that are kind of, their, their competitors and, and things like that. And uh, he says that um, the polecats say stuff about us and the blue cats and the meteors, I hear it all and I honestly don't give a damn. I think he considers that's maybe a very American thing. If someone drives by in a big Cadillac in America, everyone goes, look at that Cadillac. I'm going to get me one of them someday. In England, they just throw rocks at it. <laughs> it's, the, it's the American dream writ large, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. And Gavi mentioned that he talks about his, some of his musical influences and the Beatles and stuff like that. But he also mentions Roxy Music, which I found quite, yeah. quite interesting as well. I'm surprised at that. And he says it because it was a really wild image, yet still rock and roll. So I guess that, that early glam period of, of Roxy Music is probably what he's referring to there. That, that idea you said, Si, about, you know, the, the thing about there being a bit of beef within the rockabilly world between the Meaches and the Blue Cats and the Pole Cats and the Stray Cats. They're all cats. There's a lot of cats, aren't there? A lot of cats out there. A lot of crazy cats out there. <laughs> They're all crazy cats. Uh, and um, Brian talks about, this made me chuckle, what he's, he's saying about uh, a girl that appeared to have travelled 30 miles on a bus just for the privilege of calling him in an idiot. I mean, that's quite, you've got to be quite committed to to do that haven't you very dedicated you know, it's, it's like a whole day's travel just to go you're an idiot and then go back again <laughs> but I guess it's that thing it's sort of the after punk when well I don't know if it happened before but that idea of bands sort of selling out a little bit or you know not being true to the roots because I guess really before independent labels and stuff maybe there wasn't that same kind of notion of being authentic and true and you know not doing what you had to do to get big but Obviously, I think Brian just really wants to be a big pop star, doesn't he? Basically, like you know, like Adam Ant did, and and you know, lots and lots of other people. So um, there's lots of people gunning for him as well. But he's enjoying it. He's having a great time. He seems to be, doesn't he? He seems and yeah. he does it well, doesn't he? he? Pulls it off. But I mean, they, they didn't really sell out, did they? I mean, it was a weird thing that it was a massive kind of fear for a lot of people selling out in them days. And it was Adam Ant was definitely seen to have sort of taken some kind of conscious decision to sell his soul. Between like you know, Dirk wears white socks and Kings of the Wild Frontier, but what did they do really? I mean, you know, yeah, it's just music, isn't it? They didn't really do anything wrong, did they? Yeah. No. But the letters pages are always full of that kind of stuff, aren't they? In the both in Smash Hits and also in the, in the uh, weeklies, 
you know, people accuse, oh, so-and-so sold out, they've done this, they've done that. and Yeah. Big thing then, big thing for the fall. Kay Carroll mm. was always banging on about bands selling out. <laughs> fall never sold out. Never <laughs> <laughs> sold anywhere. <laughs> well, shall we have a look at bits, shall we? The first of, um, well, we've got bits in two parts, and we've also got independent bits uh, a little bit later on in the mag. Um, but here, lurking down at the bottom uh, corner of page 12A, because there's an A side and a B side, don't forget. Um, who is it? It's Prince. It must surely, surely be the first appearance of Prince in Smash Hits. And, and I think it'd been uh, 1981. Turned out to be uh, quite a big year for him. It was, uh, later in the year, he uh, supported the Rolling Stones in the States. But it says here, that, just a few words, Prince, one of the most outrageous and highly acclaimed funk stars to have emerged from America in recent years, makes his first British visit in June when he plays London's Lyceum on the second of the month. 21-year-old Prince, who plays 26 instruments, not all at once, has been known to take the stage wearing black bikini briefs, high-heeled boots, and black thigh-high stockings all at once. Uh, which I think is pretty much what he's wearing in this uh, in, in this photo as well. But it's a bold look for your first uh, photo in Smash It's, isn't it? it? Certainly is. I mean, Paul, you you didn't you didn't wear something like that for your first picture, did you? Very rarely, no. It was much <laughs> later when I started getting into that kind of stuff. You know. The bikini briefs <laughs> and the thigh high stockings. He was quite. It's quite a frightening. Look, I think it was quite startling at the time, wasn't he? When he first when he first started appearing, it was it was there was some I'm not sure seedy is the right word, but he was he was a strange. He was. Um, he was it was kind of a bit Rick Jamesy, wasn't he? I suppose, mm. but um, he was there was definitely a feeling of a bit, this guy's a bit of a weirdo. <laughs> Yeah, but overtly sexual as well, which, you know, especially when you compare this to the other photos that are on this particular page, uh, which is Kraftwerk, um, looking all all nice and uh, and smart in in their suits. And then underneath that, um, Kraftwerk's robots. Um, It says, the pioneers of electronic rock, the German quartet Kraftwerk, released their first album in three years this month. Computer World, as the title suggests, is a series of observations on the effects that microchippery is having on modern life. Titles like Home Computer, Computer Love, and the single Pocket Calculator, which is actually played on Texas and Casio calculators with a musical note facility, uh, indicate the drift of their songs. And, uh, and then it's got a little photo, like I say, a photo of the robots with the caption, Send in the clones. Um, Pocket Calculator was on my local radio station an awful lot. And I guess at seven years old, it was a bit of a, a novelty record. But like I said, the um, one of my brothers brought home the LP, put it on, on one side of a C90, and that was, I listened to that nonstop. One of the tracks used to scare the hell out of me. Um, numbers with the strange voices saying the numbers in different languages and stuff. But it, it says here about their robots, their new record label, EMI, have released photographs of chillingly lifelike craftwork androids, which the band have been building over the past few months. It's these automata, and not the band, who are supposed to be performing on stage while the musicians, so the rumours go, will, will be watching from the comforts of a dressing room via video. Um, so yeah, craftwork have come across to play some live dates, but they're sending out the robots instead. Why didn't they just stay at home? Yeah. <laughs> well, it says that was their original plan, wasn't it, to stay at home? They were going to play the music from the Kling Clang studio in Dusseldorf and relay it around the world via a series of satellites. But then I think the technology didn't work. But I thought that was quite interesting because in this lockdown world, we're all kind of doing something similar, aren't we, really? You mm. know, and they were kind of yeah. quite ahead of the curve there. Oh, yeah. Well, they were massively, weren't they? I mean, yeah. 
in in many many ways in many ways yeah <laughs> but yeah those automata they are quite chilling as well aren't they, they there's something kind of doctor whoish about them and a little bit unsettling yeah in a different way to Prince, but equally unsettling, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got the future here on this page, haven't you? Yeah. Think Prince and Kraftwerk, that's it. Yeah, you're right. That's that's very much the blueprint for the 80s, 90s and beyond, yeah. you know. And I, I can absolutely envisage as well a Zoom, uh, a Kraftwerk Zoom call with, with each of them in, in a little box. Because <laughs> <laughs> if, if you have seen them live, they stand at the little podium. Yeah. So, you know, not much different than that. But yeah, I saw them about three years ago, I think, in, in Sheffield. And um, they're all stood at these little um, podiums, all, you know, reaching over and pressing this and pressing that. I mean, for all I know, one of the guys could have been making his, doing his shopping list on, on, on Tesco, you know, just like, all <laughs> oh, right, which toilet rolls are on, on offer this week? Oh, I'll add them ones. I know someone who saw them on every night of that tour. I said, why? Are, surely it's exactly the same every night. He said, oh, completely different every night. I'm, 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 not, I'm not convinced. <laughs> I think he might have been having me on, actually. Surely, yeah. Yeah. And then on the next page of Bates, well, a bit of a blast from the past, really, to com- contrast with that future. Um, and a photo of uh, Ron and Russell from Sparks in boxing gear. Yeah. Uh, Ron uh, being held in some sort of grip by Russell uh, while the referee is trying to separate them. It all looks rather uh, uncomfortable. And, um, and there's an advert for, uh, for them a few pages earlier that looks like a, a boxing um out for a boxing poster as well and it's all for their new lp womp that sucker um and it says uh, study the above snap hardly action-packed is it looks more like the winners of a vertical sleeping contest <laughs> one of whom is treading on the umpire's toe by all accounts the real occasion was actually quite eventful it being three furious bouts between ron and russell mail sparks to the well-informed to assist the sales of their new and purposefully titled lp womp that sucker Cheerleaders at the Hilton Hotel ringside included Clem Burke and Nigel Harrison of Blondie, Department S, Yellow Magic Orchestra, Steve Strange, Rusty Egan, and various Bell Stars, which is a phrase that you'll see appearing in Smashes <laughs> quite a lot for a couple of years. Various Bell Stars. A whale of a time was had by all, bar Ron, he's the one with the football moustache, 11 aside, who ended up with a broken rib. Oh well, at least the other ones were all right. Does that, did that really happen? Well, I... I did a bit of digging on this, actually, because I've got a friend who's a big Sparks fan, and I asked him, and he said he could find no evidence of it. And I looked online, and there was no other mention of it, so I think that might just be a bit of uh, PR stuff going on there. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine they would have taken it that seriously that they would have been whacking each other that hard to break one of them rib. I mean, they were brothers, for God's sake, you know. I mean, would you and Steve have done that? No. No. Definitely not. Uh, but it, look, it looks like it's been set up for just... but. God bless them, smash it, so fallen for it, hook, line and sinking, haven't they? I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but also if you watch the, the video for Tips for Teens, which is on the playlist, Pop Kids, that's uh, a boxing match as well, where the, the referee looks a bit like George Bush. But that, that aside, <laughs> um, there are a couple of sort of hits in that where they're kind of jabbing at each other. Where it does look like they're actually giving each other a bit of a, yeah. a bit of a wallop. So uh-huh. maybe they did or not, but most of it is is kind of, yeah, Play fighting. Maybe there's a bit of beef going on there, you know. I never like that moustache. <laughs> I can't believe he got away with it. I can't believe he got away with standing there playing the keyboards looking like Hitler. You, I don't think you get away with it now. 
I don't think. No, I think you're right. Well, thank you. he only gets away with it now because he's been doing it for. Yeah, for I know. Yeah, years. but I mean, if you if you had whatever the equivalent <laughs> of top of the pops is, and the keyboard player was dressed like Hitler, I think some somebody might say something. Yeah, I, I found I found him terrifying. I couldn't look when he was on as a kid because it wasn't just the moustache, but it, he, he always did that creepy look to camera, didn't he? He did, yeah. And uh, yeah, it, oh, he used to send shivers up my spine. I'm still slightly traumatized. <laughs> I mean, I really like Sparks, but I can't watch those old appearances. They they creep me the hell out. (laughs) We move on a couple of pages and we come to the comic strip Zitty Ben, which I'd never heard of at all before we started the podcast until the issue where we had uh, a bit of interaction with David Titlow from Blue Mercedes and he talked about his cousin being the artist behind Zitty Ben, but it still didn't ring any bells at the time. And I think this is the first issue we've done where this comic strip has uh, been part of it. I read through it a few times. got to say, it didn't really make any bloody sense at all to me so what I, the hell is that about is this something you remember paul do you remember this no, no i don't i remember i remember there used to be good um i think it was the rec- was it record or disc used to have cartoons and they were quite funny but this one like makes no sense to me whatsoever no to me i don't understand it it's like the equivalent of doonesbury that used to be in the guardian or the independent or whatever <laughs> and i used to look at that and i'd be like I don't understand it. I've read it five times. I still don't know what it means. And I'm exactly the same as Zitty Ben. So I had a look online for Mark Castro. Like I said, we knew that he's the cousin of uh, David from Blue Mercedes, but no other information uh, did I know. The first hit I found on the internet was that Mark Castro is the author of a book called When Misfits Become Kings and Liar, Exposing Myths in Spiritual Warfare. And he's the pastor of the Shepherd's Tent Church in Covington, Georgia. So I thought, well, it's probably... <laughs> Not that one. So I had a bit more digging. And, uh, That's quite a career change there. Yeah. yeah, that would be a bit of a career change, wouldn't it? Yeah, it, yeah. because this on this uh, website, it said that he was a, a husband, father of three, and a pastor, and that his writing flows from life experiences and encounters with Jesus. And it didn't really seem to fit the brief for Zitty Ben, that. So uh, I found another blog which collected the old strips. Uh, and there's also a link to something called Astro Castro, uh, which is his blog on astrophotography, you know, photos of the stars. So uh, that's him. But I know, Sai, you, you've got a bit of information you sent me earlier on today. Yeah, well, just I found the same website that you found where he's collected together all the City Ben um, strips from over the time that he did them. And I don't know if you have to go back to the beginning to read them. You know, like some things, you have to start from the beginning to, to make sense. So maybe, you know, just dropping in kind of six months into City Ben's appearance in, in Smash It means that, you know, we're, we're kind of not, not getting the full story here. Yeah, perhaps we're doing Zitty Ben a disservice. Um, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it just uh, under the f- very first post on his blog with the very first strip, Mark's written, um, way back in 1980, as a young cartoonist and working for the music paper Smash Hits, I created a cartoon strip called Strange Tales from a Music Paper. It began as a story of the staff of the magazine. Then I brought in a character called Zitty Ben, a spotty youth who wanted to make something of his life. At first, I was only going to let the cartoon run for a few strips, but when I was going to kill him off and do other stuff, I got a ton of fan mail demanding that Zitty was not killed off. And so Zitty was to carry on for the rest of the life of the cartoon strip. Very strange. So this is presumably where they killed him off because he dies in this. He's not in it, is he, Zitty, Ben? He's dead by the beginning of the strip, if you can follow it. I think so, yeah. There's a pile of ash, isn't there? And then it also says these two piles are what's left of the dickheads. And I was quite surprised to see the word dickheads in Smash Hits in 1981. (laughs) So moving on from Zitty, Ben, on the next page we've got a lovely little uh, quarter-page picture of uh, some Adam gear. 
I always really wanted to get some of that stuff. I was never brave enough. You can buy an Adam jacket or some PVC trousers. But uh, yeah, I never, I never did. Yeah, remarkably cheap. £9.90 for an Adam jacket. I know. <laughs> it must be like all plastic, mustn't it? Yeah. Surely. Did you ever make any uh, bizarre and outre um, fashion statements with any of this kind of stuff, Paul? I did. I, 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 unfortunately, yes. The, the old Tucker boots was one that I was uh, unfortunately got on, got on the ground floor of. I don't know if you remember Tucker boots. They were like suede, sort of. They just sort of went past your ankle, but they had wooden soles, so they were absolutely <laughs> lethal in winter. You'd take one step and slip another fifteen yards. They were deadly. So they, they and uh, you, you could wear. I used to have a pair of them, and you wear them with like the socks. You know, like then Kilimanjaro tear up explodes. Oh yeah, you have big white socks like a pilot. <laughs> Unfortunately, there, 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 there is there is photographic evidence of me wearing them. I'm afraid, but you know, it wasn't the worst faux pas in the world. Presumably, before you were in the fall. No, oh, there was really? a picture of yeah. This is no, before I was in the fall. No, but I wasn't wearing them in 1979. No, there's a picture of me wearing uh, them big uh, pilot socks and uh, looking very very silly indeed. But <laughs> funnily enough, it was one of the last things I ever did with the fall. <laughs> I don't, don't think that's why I got my marching orders, but. <laughs> I'd just like to alight briefly on page 19A and the uh, the disco column counts down the uh, the disco top 40. Number one is Star Sound and Stars on 45, a record that I did buy at the time. I think this would have been the uh, the, the Beatles medley. And in the, uh, the the column, Bev Bev Hillier is writing about albums, not necessarily tracks that are in the uh, the disco chart and she mentions the uh, star sound album um she says by now you're bound to be familiar with star sound and their stars on 45 single well here comes an album consisting of 61 crummy cover versions all segued together with bass drums and hand claps in order to give it that supposedly funky feel by the end of the album the party atmosphere is beginning to fray at the edges worth buying only for the pleasure to be had by breaking it that's far from complimentary. <laughs> As someone who later bought the album, I can confirm that that would have been a, a good way to finish listening to the album. Would have been to uh, yeah, just take it off the turntable and, and, <laughs> and give it a good smashing up. So skipping on a few more pages, we come to the singles reviews by Steve Bush. He reviews 17 singles. There's no single of the week, but he blasts through them. Positive reviews for Tony Basil's Mickey, Papa's Got a Brand New Pig Bag by Pig Bag, Singles by the Bureau and Fisher Z. Um, slightly less positive reviews for Susan the Banshees, Spellbound, um, Splodgeness of Bounds, The Expressos, Split Ends and The Rhythm Slaves. Um, I was particularly drawn to um, Cody Mundy and Firmino Popeye. He calls it a rapping disco funk stomp, whatever that means, with some of this year's best lyrics. So I checked into the lyrics to find what some of this year's best lyrics were. Here's a little example. Sure your love was there, like a dandruff in my hair, like pollution in the air, like a fruit fly on a pear. But I don't really care. I throw my hands in the air and I step round to the music like a Fred Astaire. Like a Fred Astaire. <laughs> like a. Not the Fred Astaire. No, just, just one of the many Fred Astaire's. <laughs> There's a lot of them around, you know. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> they were they were good lyrics. But that's a, good, that's a great tune, that um, Cody Mundy one. It is. Paul, anything there that grabs you? Well, there's something that is intrigues me, because you, one of the reviews here is for I Want More by Cal. Hmm. Now, I, when I first saw that, I thought, I don't, I'm sure that was earlier than that. And I've looked, and as far as I can see, 
And I'm, I'm not an expert, but I've, I've doubled in Cal a few times. That album came out in 1976. That's got I Want More on. So why is it a single in 1981? Just got reissued for some reason. But, I mean, it's not, you know, if you look, if you look into it, it doesn't get mentioned that it was a... Re-released in '81. I don't think it was a hit or anything. It was a hit. It was on top of the pops the first time round, I think. Yeah, but the second time it wasn't, was it? And you just think, why? Yeah. Like, say, why release it? I don't think it was the soundtrack to any TV shows, was it? Or no, it was in a film you know, or on an advert? Or, I, no. I have no memories of it at all. None at all. Absolutely none. It seems very strange. Yeah, and it's not even mentioned that it's been out previously or anything like that. It just, uh, yeah, it's, it's just kind of blasting through these reviews. Um, it, it doesn't like the hot chocolate single either. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that hot chocolate single. No, <laughs> I mean I like a bit of hot chocolate. Don't get me wrong. I think they had some great singles, but I'm not familiar with that one. This Marty Wilde, doesn't it? Wrote it. That's right. Apparently, yeah, that's what he says. Uh, Marty and Ricky Wilde, Kim's father and brother, respectively, find themselves with hot chocolate on their hands. If I was them, I'd wipe it off quick. <laughs> So I think Steve Bush, I think it's fair to say that he gets a few things wrong. When he's talking about Susie the Banshees, he says that the recent singles lack the commercial edge that produces hits. I wonder how long they'll keep trying. But, I mean, this one got to number 22, and, you know, they did go for a long... They had a long chart life, didn't they, the Banshees? So yeah. he, uh, he definitely got that one wrong. Spellbound's fantastic as well. What's he talking about? I know, right? It's, it's a quality tune, isn't it? Yeah. He also talks about the Bureau and he kind of compares them to Dexys. Obviously, there was a lot of crossover with some of the ex-Dexys members, but he said that the singing is much better than Kevin Rowland's Strangled Whining, which, again, I think is a little harsh. I don't like this guy. Who is he? <laughs> don't like this guy. I, th- I think he was the uh, the art director, wasn't he, Steve Bush? Right. He became the uh, the editor of the uh, the magazine for, for a little while in, um, in the mid-'80s. Oh, hello. Hello. That's a very loud backfiring motorbike going past on the main road. <laughs> Can we keep that in? I mean, the, Bureau, the Bureau were Dexys, weren't they? They were most of the first album. Yeah, there was quite a few ex-members. There was. Mm. Not not Al Archer and not uh, Jimmy, but the rest of them, I think. Mm. If you want to get too specific, I, can, I, can, <laughs> I can't give you the names, but... We've got a little bit more of the rockabilly as well there, haven't we? We've got Coast to Coast because we were talking about Stray Cats and the Polecats and the Meaches and all the other cat bands. But, yeah, Coast to Coast doing Let's Jump the Broomstick in there. Mm. Well, it says, uh, in the tradition of darts, but minus the style and imagination. <laughs> That's proper yeah. damning that, isn't it? First band I ever saw live darts. All right. All, all I can say is they did give value for money because there's about 35 of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so where and when? Free trade all. 19, I mean, it's a bit of a shame, really, because the next two bands I saw were Buscocks and Blondie. So if I could have just, I mean, you know, singing out of darts, plays on Sandy, he sings on Sandy Nister. They weren't that, that lacking in credibility, I don't think. But, uh, well, yeah, they were. Sorry, I'm lying. <laughs> they were completely lacking in credibility. But I don't know why I'd latched onto them. I don't know why. I mean, that's, that was, I mean, they were past, uh, they were finished by 81 but they had 1978 they were riding high in the charts mm. come back my love boy from new york city oh we've reached the halfway point landscape ah would, would, would anyone like to uh, to sort of take us through this um, this vision of landscape here, which is actually in portrait yeah. for a start? So it's not it's not even in landscape because you have to turn it on its side to make it into a poster. A portrait picture of landscape, very good, very good. Go on, Paul, describe what we can see. Yeah, so landscape, uh, we're definitely 
reinvent themselves as new romantic, wouldn't they? Because I think, I might be right, this guy at the front here who's got slightly convincing haircut, he was a producer as well. He produced Spandau Ballet. Richard somebody, I think his name is? Richard Burgess. Yes, that's the chap. Yeah, so they obviously thought there was some um, mileage in going new romantic. But the guy on the right was having none of it, was he? <laughs> I don't care what you say about them frilly shirts. I'm not wearing them and I'm not doing my hair and I'm certainly not shaving off my moustache. <laughs> I've had this year, so I'm not getting rid of it. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a long time ago, then. He's growing, growing hair where he can, let's face it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't do a beard. Can't do my head. I'm keeping the tash. <laughs> You're not taking this off me, Burgess. I mean, the rest of the band have really bought into it, aren't they? There's some uh, pink pixie yeah. boots there and uh, a, a very blue blues on. And, yeah, uh, it is very blue. And, and the lad behind, he's got his little neckerchief, and and it's very eighties because it's got Venetian blinds, and that's a, a very much a trope of early eighties, isn't it? And they've not done a very good job on the uh, shine control either. They're all they're all looking very shiny. Oh no, they are. I cannot believe that anybody put this on their wall. <laughs> I'm not having it. Even the mothers of landscape would have not not put this on the wall. Oh, no. oh, our son! I'm not putting that up. <laughs> So, yeah, we've reached that halfway point of the uh, mag, which means it's time to close it, flip it, and turn it round as well. And we get a new front uh, with Kim Wilde looking at us. Uh, Kim just sort of look, looking a bit sullen and sulky on a, uh, a nice kind of uh, a pinky purple background. We get a contents page again. They mean business with this uh, second side of Smash It's. And... Uh, the lyrics to the Jam's Funeral Player, actually, I didn't check that. Has it, has it got the... Um, uh, oh, it has got the pissing in there. I didn't know whether yeah, it Yeah, it's got have. the pissing, yeah. Yeah. First thing I checked for, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I imagine that word that uh, cost them quite a bit of airplay because this is sort of like the, the lost Jam single, in a way. Mm. People don't seem to remember this I one. don't think I don't think, they, I don't think they picked up on the fact that it could swear. It's fairly murky. You can't pick it out very easily. I don't. I think they still played it. Yeah, I don't think it got picked up on the fact that they were saying pissing themselves laughing. Yeah, Weller always buried his vocals a lot, didn't he? And he, the way he yeah. enunciated himself was it was often hard to hear what he was singing. But yeah, what, where did this get signed? I don't remember it being a massive hit. This one, anyway. Go on, have a look in your book, lad. I think I think it was a number one. You know, was it? It wasn't. Funeral Pyre wasn't number one. No, it wasn't. Was it? Uh, Surely not. I don't know, number four. Okay, it's higher than I thought. Yes, I didn't do so bad then, did it? Do beg your pardon there. <laughs> but still, he <laughs> mm. seems to be, uh, yeah, seems to be one of the less remembered um, of, of their singles. One of my favourites. Great, great drumming on this. Absolutely fabulous oh, yeah. drumming on yeah, this. Yeah, that kind of last 30 seconds of it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, tremendous. Brilliant. <laughs> Talking about drummers and stuff like that, was anybody you know that, that you particularly looked up to, Paul? Yeah, there were a few, yeah. Well, there was the Manchester Three. Were my, so there was Carl Burns, who was a drummer in the fall, the one before me, and then there was Steve Morris from Joy Division, New Order, and uh, John Marr from Buzzcocks. So they were all just slightly older than me, but they were like my three favourite drummers, and they were all sort of metaphorically on my doorstep. And then Clem Burke as well, he was brilliant, wasn't he? I mean, mm. what a fabulous drummer he was. And I think he influenced John Marr quite a lot. But they were the, they were the three that I looked up to. I mean, I did like Rick Buckler's drumming. And he, I always like that drum solo we did on down in the tube station. That was pretty good, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. We always had lovely toms, lovely toms, big ones. Dead I hope. This is the only one he gets a credit on this, by the way. This is the only Cole Wright they ever released, I think. So it's credited to them all. Oh, yeah. 
Good spotting. You're good at yeah. fact-checking you, Paul. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, as a drummer, when, when you watch other bands on, on telly or you're at gigs and stuff, do you spend a lot of time checking out what the drummer's doing and trying to get little little tips or, you know... I do check out what they're doing. I, I don't I don't try, tend to do watch, you know, see go, go giggers do my own work. I try and, try and avoid that if you can, if I can. You just want to watch the band, really. But you do find yourself drawn to the drummer. Particularly if he's not very good, that that's really annoying. And if he's great, then I find that hard to ignore as well. But I, I'd, I'd much rather go for a mediocre drummer than a ba- than a bad drummer, obviously. But what what I want to know is, and we're talking about the, the early eighties when uh, synth drums were starting to come in. Did you ever have any synth drums? And did you ever have the one that went boo boo like that? I didn't. But as I, I was mentioning, Steve Morris, he had one. Yeah, and uh, he had the, this syndrome, and it had two sounds basically. It had the boo boo, you know, the love don't live it anymore. Yeah, and it had one that sounded like you were in a metal tin, like which he uses on she lost control. So that was pretty much all he did. Yeah. So he does that. I'm miming here, but yeah. So that they were the only two things they did, and and then the then the first one I remember was when. Funnily enough, Spandau Ballet, uh, he had a kit, then he had a Simmons kit, where they were like the first ones I remember, and he had a full Simmons kit. So they're the kind of hexagonal ones. The hexagonal ones, and the first ones that came out of them, they, were, they weren't they were padded, it was like hitting a kitchen table. They were absolutely horrendous to play. I mean, I never had one, I couldn't have afforded one even if I'd wanted to, but I played a couple in shops, and they were just, they must have jarred your spine playing them, I don't know how he did it, because they were just like they were just like hitting a solid piece of wood. Awful. <laughs> <laughs> and thinking about, uh, you know, the, the sorts of uh, studios that you used to go in um, with the fall in those days, you know, it was all about the, the drum sound in the early 80s music. I think, you should, I think you're mis- mistaking us for a different band. I don't think anything. I know. Just, just bear, bear with me. Um, so, yeah, talking about the, the drum sound, they spend days setting up the drums, you know, all that Phil Collins gated snare and stuff. What was the, uh, the, the fall approach to, uh, to recording the drums? Well, we did a bit of that. You did a bit of that where you got, you know, thirty-five minutes hitting the tom. But the one, I, the, the one I remember is we had, we went in this guy guy called Grant Showbiz who produced the fall. He had, he built his own studio in a squat in London, and it was in the cellar, and there was only room to put like so. You obviously have, have baffles around the kit to separate the sound, but there wasn't room to take them down again. So once I was in there, they put these baffles up, and that was it. I was in there for the day. Couldn't let me out. <laughs> I was in there about six hours, and there was obviously no air conditioning. Well, they didn't have a toilet, so the chances of having air conditioning was pretty uh, low. So that was it. I was stuck in there for the whole day. But it sounds all right. That's container drivers we did in there. Some called container drivers. The drums, the drums sound all right on that. I think. Yeah. Was anybody passing? It was a gap to pass through, like a sandwich. There was, there was a gap to pass the other glass of water. Yes, that was it. Yeah. Good, good times. <laughs> the next time I listen to that song, I, I, sh- I shall be picturing that now. Think you, of me, you, yes. You, you trapped trap behind the baffles. <laughs> So we go from, well, talking about a, a recording studio in a squat to um, Rack Studios just next to Regent's Park in St. John's Wood in London. And uh, Smash It's have gone to see Kim Wilde, who's recording there. She's signed to the uh, same record label as well, Mickey Mouse record label. And the title of the piece is Wildlife. Oh, how long did that take? <laughs> Didn't work hard on that one, did they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What should we call this one? Mm. I think it may have been uh, the first big feature that they've done on Kim Wilde in the mag. So I'll kind of let them off. 
doing it the first time. If they did it again, if they repeated this, then words need to be had. But it's Johnny Black talking to um, Kim, like I say, at the um, recording studio, Rack Studios in London. And I think she's very keen to prove the point that, that she's not just some kind of airhead pop star puppet or, or some kind of spoiled pop brat being uh, as she is the daughter of a pop star and her brother also uh, tried to launch his own pop career in the 70s as well. And she says here, I don't think anybody's impressed by daughters of famous people. They expect you to be spoiled, mindless and untalented. And sometimes they're right. I hope I'm not like that. So she's trying to paint herself, in a way, quite down to earth, but advanced for her age. And uh, talking about, you know, obviously she's from a musical family. She's saying there's always music being played around the house. And this caught my attention. She says, there's always a lot of music in the house. I tend to listen to albums. I play Another Green World by Brian Eno a lot. And Joni Mitchell. I try to keep my tastes wide and it's always changing. But I'll eternally respect the two Elvises, Aretha Franklin and Chuck Berry. But yeah, I thought that was really interesting that she uh, she listens to Brian Eno's Another Green World quite a lot. Whether she's dropping that in there for a bit of cred or not, I don't know. But it's my fa- favourite Brian Eno album, so mm. I'm not going to argue. No. <laughs> yeah, I was quite surprised at that. But I, yeah, I, I can't imagine because she seems very grounded and... Not someone that's particularly after any credibility. So it seems genuine to me, that, I think. Yeah. And she says as well that, um, oh, it says that her taste in men's clothes ransacks from Oxfam shops, her outspoken opinions and a range of interests beyond music that runs from Japanese koi fish to cookery and impressionist painting, all testify to her being more than just another member of the all-singing, all-dancing wild bunch. He said, same pun again, same pun again. you got to work it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and she also gives um, a, a Top of the Pops a bit of a dressing down as well, because apparently she sang live on Top of the Pops. They did a, a, an all-live edition, and uh, she said, that show needed a kick up the arse, didn't it? Putting it out live made a real difference. Best thing that happened to it in years. I prefer the European shows where they seem better organised. You can do little bits of comedy routines. I think that I think that quote, up until the bit where she talks about comedy routines on European TV shows, if someone said it was a Marky Smith quote, you'd go, oh, yeah, it sounds like it, you know, <laughs> about giving them a kick up the arse and, you know, it's much better doing it live and all that, you know. Yeah. It's quite refreshing coming at, at these two interviews with Stray Cats and uh, Kim Wilde because often with the issues that Cy and I have done from sort of later on in the 80s, we say, don't we, Sai, always, that there's there's always one where one of the pop stars is really pissed off about something. The record label or Top of the Pops didn't play it or Radio 1 have done something or another band, they've got beef with another band or money or something. But with both the Stray Cats and Kim Wilde, they both seem very grounded. They're really enjoying what they're doing. They're just having a great time, loving the music, you know, loving where they're at. And, you know, it's quite refreshing to see that, it's you know it's all positive and there's there's no downside to it. <laughs> That's what struck me, you know. I think did, I think later on, bands started being like that because that was like what Smash Hits wanted. I think that that well, powerful Smash Hits. I mean, you, you get the take that's of this world. They were kind of built to be a Smash Hits band in kind of, some kind of ways, weren't they? Mm. They were like they were really they were always really positive and really enjoying it, or they seemed to be. It wasn't really. It seemed to be about making pop fun again. I think. 
you know, I mean, there's only so many times you can read about UB40 moaning about everything, isn't there? I mean, <laughs> oh god, yeah, once is enough. How did you know we were talking about UB40? <laughs> well, I've, seen, I've read interviews with them before, and they're just dude, but get a, but get a job in, in a shop, mate. Why? What is the problem? With, it's, they're just I don't know. There's something about UB40. They were always miserable, weren't they? <laughs> It's not just us, Si. We're not the only ones who've picked up on it. <laughs> thank God, Paul. Thank God. <laughs> no, it's always our joke that they're just, yeah, every every interview with them. And they're in every issue. They've got a single out every week, haven't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah it, seems, it seems like that. <laughs> yeah. I think there's quite an interesting bit where the interviewer says that tucked away inside the streetwise aggressive kid who struts on top of the pops are layers of other characters. There's a sensible business mind ticking away constantly. There's a loner who adores the 1930s film idol Greta Garbo. There's also a future mum and a great cook. I found that jarred a bit because she didn't talk about being a mother at all and they've just decided, oh, yeah, she's, she'll be a mum one day. That's <laughs> really odd, isn't it? Yeah. That's a really odd comment, that. I mean, she does talk about cookery, so that's fair enough. Uh, she talks about make, cooking a meal for the band. And they all come round and uh, she's made him a meal. I'm, I'm presuming Mark never never did that for the lads. No, no, no. He made the, made, made the odd crisp sandwich, but okay. that was about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because th- you know, putting that in there does kind of jar slightly with something that, that she says earlier when she's talk, it's talking about she did um, a foundation course in arts at college, and uh, she it says, Kim became aware of how the establishment favours the male of the species. You're painfully aware of the lack of women painters. Colleges have mainly male tutors who give the blokes the majority of their time so they get the best places in art schools. It's partly that if a woman wants to have kids, she can't follow a career as well. Um, and so, it, yeah, it kind of jars with that a little bit. That, you know, bless her, she'll make a great mum one day. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Once her pop career's over... Yeah, <laughs> to be a lovely mother. Yeah, like I say, it jarred a, a little bit. Yeah, uh, and, and just didn't fit very well with the young independent woman that that she clearly is. You know, mm. she, she's not wanting to be poked and, and shoved around and, and pigeonholed or anything like that. She's quite willing to play the pop game, but she's also got a very strong sense of of who she is and her part in that. Which I think is is quite healthy for her, mm. and probably why she's one of the pop stars from that time, who's uh, probably managed to remain uh, sane over the years. But you do get a little glimpse in because isn't she like into gardening and stuff now? She is, yeah. And the piece ends with um, my perfect world would have a river flowing through it, beautiful trees, lots of greenery, fish ponds. And then she she goes a bit off the gardening theme, and, and everyone wearing white, drinking champagne and ice. But just for one day, <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I really like normal life. If you can be happy with what you do, then that's the most idyllic way to be alive. How sensible! How normal! Seriously, that's how the piece ends. Yeah, I thought she came across really, really well in that. And yeah, like I say, just very grounded and not trying to be anyone else at all, but just being herself and being a bit of a showbiz trooper, I guess. You know, yeah. knowing the value of. Bit of entertainment. Obviously, she'd grown up in that family, but didn't doesn't come across as spoil or you know any of that stuff. Just yeah, I, I got a lot of respect for her. You know, fair deuce. And Kids in America is a great tune. So you know, it is a great song. And then moving on to the second dose of bits that we've got in the magazine. A few interesting things on here. We've got a tape label that Rough Trade have just started called Rough Tapes, which is the cassette label offshoot of Rough Trade. 
Uh, and they've just brought out a compilation called C81, which is 81 minutes of music, and obviously it's from 1981, retailing at £3.75. 24-tracks including Ian Jury, The Raincoat, Scritti Politti, The Beat, Robert Wyatt, Pear Rubu, John Cooper Clark, Orange Juice, Wahit, Buzzcocks, and another 14 others. I thought this was quite interesting because... Um, Obviously, eventually the C81 idea would kind of go forward and there'd be C86, and that was kind of the start of a whole kind of musical indie movement. Um, I had a look at Rough Tapes on Discogs because it wasn't a, a label that I remembered. Obviously, Rough Trade is very, very famous, but I didn't think Rough Tapes had gone on very long. And no, indeed, they hadn't. There was only 11 releases altogether. There's a, a live Psychic TV album, and there's actually a full promo release. I don't know if you... If you're aware of that, Paul. I'm not. What's on it? No, it was, it was fall, the fall on one side and a band called World Service, who I'd never heard of before. On the other, it was a promo release. Um, what song is it? Um, I think it might be. I think you mentioned Container Drivers before. I think that might be on it. I didn't. Uh, okay. I've not written down, but there's like three or four tracks, which I guess was to be sent out to radio stations across across the world, I guess. I don't know. but ne- Never heard of that one. <laughs> I never got past the promo stage. That All right. And we've also got Spandau Ballet. We mentioned Spandau Ballet in the syndromes earlier on. And they've taken New York, if not by storm, certainly by a gentle breeze. <laughs> uh, they had a gig that they played. Quite a few people there, including Mick Ronson, a talking head. We don't know which one, but one of the talking heads, presumably not David Byrne. that would mentioned if it was him, I guess. Uh, Billy Idol, to name but a few. And uh, also, intriguingly, this is what really caught my eye, Francis Ford Coppola. Was there? Apparently, he really loved the muscle bound video. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Again, that might be just a bit of PR fluff that Smash It's a Fallen for there. <laughs> I think maybe someone in the Spandau Ballet camp said, "Oh no, Francis Ford's a big fan of muscle bound." <laughs> so, yeah, I, I find that very, very difficult to believe. Also, the Fall get a mention on this page. The Fall Foundation. So there's a little bit with fan clubs, and there's uh, you're in good company there, Paul. There's Japan, the Beat, Spandau Ballet again care of Vicky Sylvester yeah, and uh, the Fall Foundation 429B Berry New Road Salford 7 Lancashire remember it well I remember that office very well yeah rehearsal rooms and office yeah well yes it wasn't a rehearsal room it was um, it was a it was a really run down crappy office and um, City Life had the office downstairs I don't know that City Life were a Manchester sort of listing a bit like um, Time Out but for Manchester, so they were downstairs, but they didn't mind the racket. But I mean, most of the time we spent was going over to the the house at Jack Mill, which was the pub across the road. <laughs> but then, um, so we had two drummers in there in four two nine B Berry New Road, who must have made a right racket. God, yeah. So I don't think there was much going on in that block of shops. <laughs> they can't have been because we'd have been kicked out. Oh, was that just across the way from uh, the precinct, like the little pre- Presswich precinct? Or was it a bit further no, it was down? a bit further down. Oh, it was right. a, bit b- bounce, a bit further back towards Man- uh, centre of Manchester. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So if, if people had written to this, what would they have got in return? Can you remember? Well, it's interesting you could say that because the, um, we did write back. We, we basically, every now and again, Mark would give us a few letters and say, write back to them. And one of the people who got a reply and who still got the letter, Stuart Lee, Steve, we got a letter back from Steve, funnily enough. And uh, Bob Stanley, I he, I sent him a letter, apparently, so I'm, I'm led to believe later on. <laughs> I replied to his letter and sent him a letter and a poster, and he's still got the poster. He's lost the letter, though. Nice, isn't it? <laughs> never kept the letter, but never mind. So, I mean, I don't know how much we did reply, but 
it seems quite weird that those two people still remember it, but we mm. must have also a few people. But it was very haphazard. It was like now and again he'd give us a few letters and say reply to them. But there was nothing. There was I don't. There was no fan club then. I think the fall had a fan club later on. I think. Yeah, they did. But then it, that wasn't really a fan. The fall foundation was just write us a letter. And we might send you one back. I think that's that's as far <laughs> as it went. <laughs> I do like the idea though of, of uh, some kid coming across this in in smash hits and and writing to you, and and then just one of you uh, getting the letter and randomly writing back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's basically how it works. Yeah. <laughs> so doesn't it seem really weird that, that the fall are in there then? Why? Did it, why? I mean, if you look, right, also, who are we going to have? Well, we'll have Spandau Ballet, obviously. Uh, we'll go maybe Japan there coming up nicely. But then, then the fall, that seems really odd to me. Yeah, it is very random, that, isn't it? But, that, I mean, that's the thing yeah, about yeah. Smash Hits, isn't it? And particularly the bits pages is you just get an absolute cross-section of everything that's going on musically, you know, across the landscape. Yeah. So, you know. It kind of fits in that way. But, yeah, I know what you mean. It does yeah. seem a little uh, incongruous. Thing. Yes, you know, if it was the desperate bicycles and uh, you know, or something, and then the fall, you could say, fair enough. But Japan, the beat, Spandau Ballet in the fall seems really odd. <laughs> Strange bedfellows. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> and talking of the fall, we, we can move on to uh, Invicta Radio. And the reason I mentioned the fall is uh, there's a great song that mentions Essence of Tong on a later fall album. And I found out doing a bit of research on uh, the Invicta radio station, the pirate radio station, that Pete Tong got his first ever gig on uh, Invicta in the late 70s. So uh-huh. Invicta was filled with the essence of Tong. Um, it's, it was okay. basically a soul radio station from London. Uh, they said that they had around about 20,000 listeners, which, you know, not too shabby, I'd say. No. Uh, filling a gap, saying that no one was playing soul back in the day when they started. They They were going from 1969 originally, and finally went off air in um, 1984. Um, I like Pete Silverton does the piece uh, about them, and he says, uh, it moves with the same loose-limbed strut and jive as the black music they spin. The DJs are young, super-knowledgeable soul enthusiasts, touched with the fever of keeping the faith. The dedications are delightful messages to the likes of the Southall Funketeers and the Paddington Funk Set. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's the fastest, <laughs> brightest, coolest four hours on British radio. So uh, I guess it probably seemed quite edgy at the time having pirate radio. I mean, I, I never listened to any. I don't really remember listening to any at all. But Paul's side, do you have any memories of pirate radio? Did you ever come across much? No, not at all. I'm trying to think. I, 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 I wouldn't. If you'd have said to me there was still pirate radio stations in the 80s, I'd have been surprised, to be honest. Mm. Because I mean, no, there's obviously there's the, the big one in the 60s that all got subsumed into. Radio One eventually. I didn't know there was still pirate radio then. Was it legal? Well, it can't have been. I mean, no. It says in the piece it was uh, it was illegal. Yeah, very, very uh, much but... illegal. Yeah, I mean they used to do it from like tower block. I mean certainly in London they'd be from tower blocks and they'd have a you know, transmitter on the roof and whole all kind of homemade electronic stuff and transmitters and things and always getting raided and things like that. No, I, I didn't encounter pirate radio until I moved to London. It was still very much active um, in in the mid nineties uh, and well up until I left London. You know, probably about ten years later. Um, you know, you'd be listening to you know whatever station you were listening to, you know, a bit of Radio Three, for example, getting all cultured. Then all of a sudden, you'd have some beats come in, and cra- <laughs> crashing it and stuff. I mean, all that has kind of been uh, sort of you know put paid to by digital radio because you, you don't get that crossover of frequencies like you know where things bleed together like they do on on FM. 
through, flick a few pages, and we get to the letters page. The first few, well, quite a few of them, concerned with the cover stars from a few weeks previous. Teardrop explodes, and the second letter down says, At last, your magazine has something worth buying it for. The Teardrop Explodes feature, April 30th. Let's have something like this more often, and some more colour pictures of Julian Cope as he is so beautiful, and if by chance he reads this, if you look publish it, then he should know that there is nothing wrong with his body. I think he is just perfect, and with his wonderful voice, what more could he want? How about also printing a picture of his wife, as I've heard a rumour that she looks like Adam Ant, and I wouldn't wish that on anyone. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> now then, do, do, does uh, Dorian Cope look like Adam Ant? I'm sure she doesn't. I don't think so. I'm sure she doesn't. Pretty sure she doesn't. She has got that big white stripe across her face, <laughs> hasn't she? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know if it had been married to Dorian at that point, or whether it had been his, his first wife. Um, but the, the the next letter down from that claims to be Joe Callis. Formerly of um, what it says, ex Rosillos, ex Shake, ex Boots for Dancing, ex Human League. So currently of the Human League, um, a very strange letter. And uh, whoever's editing the letters on this has said, "Joe, is that really you, Joe?" Knock once for yes, knock twice for no. <laughs> <laughs> so I doubt it is really um, Joe Callis of uh, the Human League. I'm not convinced. I think it is. Do you reckon it is? I do, yeah, because obviously there's a, some kind of in-joke where Adrian Wright, who couldn't play anything at all because he did the slides and all the visuals, yeah. in the in interview is saying that he taught Joe Callis to play keyboards and then Joe Callis has got his own back by writing into the paper. <laughs> now, surely, I cannot... I can't. The only thing that makes me think that it really is him, who else would be bothered doing it? <laughs> was Joe Callis living in Edinburgh at that time or will they not have been in Sheffield? Or? Yeah, well, he, he was involved in the um, Scottish music scene. Obviously, the, the Rosillos were a Scottish band. OK. Because um, he, he joined the Human League uh, around about the time of Dare to be like a, a songwriter to, yeah. you know, uh, to, so okay. after the original lineup uh, split up. Oh, yeah, I mean, the letter says, I, I couldn't help but notice in last issue of Smash Hits, a claim by those cuddly fringe tops the Human League that they taught me to play keyboards. Well, just to set the record straight, this was a big fib on the part of David Prowse lookalike Adrian Wright. In fact, I doubt that the league could teach anyone to play a kazoo. I mean, my pal Faye Fife says Phil doesn't even pluck his eyebrows properly. So there. <laughs> oh, I'm convinced then. If it's good enough for Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm having that. Uh, all right. Um, there's a letter towards the end of the first page as well. It says... Um, after watching the TV Times Top 10 Awards, I came to the conclusion that all TV Times readers are a bunch of mindless twits who would vote for Barry Manilow as the most exciting singer. And that's from one of Adam Ant's buckles. <laughs> What's wrong with Barry Manilow? Nothing wrong with Barry Manilow. <laughs> and then a letter about um, Adam and the Ants on the um, next page. It says, I write to tell you of my dislike for Gary. I follow every fashion tips who is trying and failing to be a so-called ant person. He was bad in the vibrators, absolutely awful in breaking glass and rocks music, but now he really takes the biscuit. So somebody, yeah, getting a bit annoyed about um, Gary Tibbs suddenly being in Adam and the Ants. Yeah. I think it's kind of a strange person to get that annoyed about Gary Tibbs. You know, he's quite a... Mm -hmm. Background vanilla kind of guy, wasn't he? Really, you know. He didn't look great in the ant gear, though. I must admit, he, did, he didn't pull it off as well as Kevin Mooney. No, but he pulled it off better than Marco. Surely, Marco always looked a bit uncomfortable in the uh, satin and the. I'm, I'm gonna. <laughs> I won't have a word said against Marco Peroni. I'm afraid. Oh no, I love Marco Peroni to bits, <laughs> but he, he never looked very happy in that gear, did he? 
No, there was some of it. I think. I, I think it was. You know, it was a bit too far for him. Well, talking about Kevin Mooney, so the next letter down says, while I was doing Kevin Mooney's washing the other week, I noticed his pale lilac shirt with multicoloured shapes on it was missing. Then in two issues running, I saw it on Gary Tibbs. Was kicking Kev out of the band not enough? Did they have to take the shirt off his back too? Or did Gary Tibbs nick it from his case when he wasn't looking? I think what you've got there is a is a band with a wardrobe department. I think that's, that's, what, that's what's happening there. That could be it. Could be it. That could be it. The carousel spins forward a little more, and we land upon independent bits, which is kind of almost like the sister page to the uh, disco special that we had earlier on, like the disco page. It also has a, a chart. We've got top thirty singles and the independent albums top ten. And on the independent singles top 30, we'll find the full last week's number three, this week's number three with the Slates EP on Rough Trade Records. That's interesting, that, because I'll tell you why. The whole thing about the Slates was it was a 10-inch, six-track EP, and it was the story goes, and Mark always said that he did that because that way it wouldn't be eligible for either the singles, the independent singles chart or the independent albums chart. <laughs> so Rough Trade wouldn't get the uh, credibility that they wanted because he, he did it to piss off um, Rough Trade. And so that, it's not true. It's there. It's well, in the no. chart. Jeff Travis had the last laugh because there they are in number three. <laughs> yeah. So, actually, I, I, I never took that any but face value. That, yeah, it couldn't go in any of the charts because it was the wrong format. And there it is, number three. <laughs> I mean, that's quite good if you think about it because it was a lot more expensive than a single. So to get to number three two weeks in the work, on a row, that's not bad, that. No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. And um, we also get, just talking about sort of big names that are in here, uh, the very first single by Flock of Seagulls uh, is in here. It's Not Me Talking by Liverpool band of Flock of Seagulls. Their name may be weirdly enticing, but their music barely conceals weak songs under the fashionable icing of electronic trickery and that sound of distant drums. So, uh, yeah, going by that review, you wouldn't have expected great things from a Flock of Seagulls. You'd never have imagined they'd been Pulp Fiction all those years later, would you? But there you go. <laughs> no? There you go. So yeah, it's interesting seeing that page in there. They didn't. It didn't last all that much longer, did it? Independent bits, but no. And it's it's kind of almost like elements of John Peel's show that's that's made it because mm. it's not like the weeklies um, how they would have presented that information. It's got a kind of more friendly, avuncular sort of a feel to it. And it's oh, here's an address and right, send a stamped addressed envelope, and there you go, sort of thing. And it, yeah, very much that John Peel sort of thing. Oh, so and so's done a fanzine and uh, uh, send a stamped addressed envelope to. to this address <laughs> but nice to see it there anyway i was gonna say there's nobody you've ever heard of on here though is there well a couple of i've heard of the fallout club just about i think but none of these like i say flock of seagulls are the only ones none of these were went on to be the next big thing did they on here no not at all not even the next obscure thing <laughs> <laughs> i'm just going back to the um slate cp yep. and obviously it's in in the independent singles chart uh, around this time, what what do you remember about uh, maybe the the writing of it and and the recording of it? Because looking at the credits on on the EP, you know, uh, and the writing credits are fairly evenly spread across the band, so you you're getting some writing credits in there. Yeah, I mean, one, the one caveat with full writing credits is that they don't off, always bear much relation to what actually was going on. But I think the difference then, and it kind of fed into later on, is we got a, an office. Yeah, in uh, Presswich, so the, an office slash rehearsal room. So for the first time, things were being written with the drummer in the with me in the room with the drummer in the room because before that, things were written 
or put together in a Mark's flat. So there was never a drummer involved in that, really. I mean, obviously, once it was taken to a rehearsal room, things got developed. But it was the first time I was kind of in on the ground floor of writing stuff, which is, reflects how, you know, the, the writing credits, I think. And obviously that fed in later on when we had two drummers, because then when I, for the first time we were starting things with drums, things like the classical, where, you know, well, it depended on who you asked this week, who started it off, but... um <laughs> It was we were in at the ground floor as, as drummer, which was the first time, which is probably reflected in the credits, I think. Yeah, and looking at the the, the track listing, the EP ends with "Leave the Capital," which is the uh, the title that that you borrowed for your first book. I did. So, what, what's that? The history of Manchester music in thirteen recordings. Did you want to tell us a little bit about about that and why why you wrote it? Yeah, well, obviously, the "Leave the Capital" was quite good uh, happenstance for the title because obviously the book's all about getting out of London and the book itself is about how the difference between basically the Manchester musicians who started studios and, you know, gave something back to Manchester, if that, if that doesn't sound too pompous, but um, it was, there's a, obviously there's two guys out of Herman's Hermits, Keith Hopwood and uh, Derek Leckenby, and there's uh, Graham Gullman and uh, Eric Stewart, who were later of 10CC, of course. Uh, Graham Gullman was mainly a songwriter then. Eric Stewart was in the Mindbenders. And then when they made some money in 19, sort of late mid-60s, they built studios in Manchester. And at that point, there, weren't, there wasn't any studios outside of London. I mean, there was demo studios, but nothing that would get you on a record you could do without going to London. So that was the basis. I started off just thinking I'd write about the studios in Manchester, but then when I found all that out, it kind of had a narrative and a big middle and a beginning and an end. So I wanted to do that and kind of at one point compare it to the Beatles, who obviously came from Liverpool, similar. But once they went to London, they never went back, really. They built Apple, but they built it on, you know, Savile Row, which is like the richest street in the richest borough in probably the richest uh, city in the world. So... It was kind of that thing of giving something back. It's something Tony Wilson's talked about with, um, he's talked about Strawberry Studios and he's also talked about it in terms of the Hacienda and New Order giving something back to Manchester. But I mean, it's never been more than two sentences with Tony Wilson because, you know, he's, he's a good quote. But I thought I'd try and put some meat on the bones of that. And it, it it's true, I think. I think it is a thing that those people gave something back. And then, of course, because you've got Strawberry in Manchester, you end up with Joy Division, making unknown pleasures which it will no I don't think it could have been made quite the same anywhere else so that's basically the story of the book yeah and you you write a bit about the the fall in the book but you mentioned that leave the capital the song itself wasn't recorded in manchester you recorded that one down in london no it wasn't that was recorded in london yeah we did that we did that ep slates which obviously in the charts there we did that in london and we worked with uh, well it was Grant Showbiz was um the main producer, but I think Rough Trade were looking to make it nice and shiny. So they had Jeff Travis, who was obviously the uh, head of Rough Trade, if you like. He'd produced Grotesque, so they had him in. And we also got Adrian Sherwood in, which was quite a big thing because he was quite a big sort of dub producer. Mark was a bit of a fan of Prince Farai, so that was why we got him in. And if you look at the cover, uh, uh, I can't think. I can't think what record it is now. Uh, but there's a Prince Farai record, and the, the cover is very similar to the cover of Slates. So it was kind of a it marks kind of tribute, I think, which I didn't know about at the time. It wasn't like he took, rang me up and told me. I, I just found that out later on with a bit of detective work. <laughs> and uh, you've done a, a book since that, that covers Hex Induction Hour. Yeah. And uh, your brother Steve did a book about his his time in, in the fall as well. Yeah. 
I mean, I wouldn't like to compare the two. They're not the same thing. Steve's is a, you know, autobiography, if you will, of his time yeah. in the form. Mine was, it was basically, I was kind of asked, well, the publisher said they'd like to do like a 33 and a third book about Hex Induction Hour. And my main overriding motivation for writing it was because I didn't want anybody else to write it, basically. I thought I could do that. And somebody else writes it. I don't think it would be as good. I mean, it's quite arrogant. I don't think it would be as good as if I wrote it. So then that was why I did it. It wasn't I wasn't something I was planning on doing. I mean, in fact, when I was doing uh, interviews and pressing stuff for Leave the Capital, I, I kept saying I'm not be, I won't be writing about the fall again. So I'll say it again now. I won't be writing about the fall again. So you can look out for my new book about the fall coming out in six months. Yeah, but you're, you're podcasting about the fall, though, aren't you? Well, I mean, you know, um, I did ask if anybody would want to get behind a podcast of the time I worked at Shell for five years, but it was kind of got less interest, really. So I decided to go for the fall instead. I mean, that, that, there's this conversation, you know, it is interesting, be, you know, the whole thing of the fall. And what we're trying to do with the podcast, it's not necessarily me and Steve. I mean, the first episode is me and Steve talking about our experience in the fall. That's to get it going. But it's trying to talk about other people's experiences, some of which... There is no overlap at all, you know. You know, so it's like us asking about what it was like being in the fall at this time. Obviously, you have a little bit of insight because you've been in a similar situation. But we're talking to people who it's not the same situation, you know. There's like people who were in the fall three years, four years more after Steve was in there. So it's not just us whittering on about our, the good old days of the fall. It's trying to find out what makes the fall unique, really, from all ends, from the beginning to the end. That's the plan. Do you feel like the fall are becoming more and more appreciated as time goes on? It, as a fan, it feels kind of like that to me. Definitely. And and what's interesting is that, you know, like books like that, Excavate, you know, uh, Bob mm. Stanley, Tessa Norton. And I'm not sure you could write that book about, or not really write, but compile that book about that many bands. You know, you know, we've got a chapter comparing them to non-league football. We've got a chapter comparing them to philosophical writers. I'm not sure there's that many. I mean, Bob Dylan you could do it with, obviously, and possibly the Beatles, probably. But I don't think there's that many. I don't think you'd get, you know, a book like that about Teardrop Explodes, not to the detriment or, or, or whoever. I'm just plucking names out. But it's, there's something about the fall. It's obviously a lot of that's grounded in Mark's writing because he wrote about anything and everything and made it sound like Marky e. Smith, which is quite a talent, really, to make, you know, write one song about Krakens and one song about Aftershave, and they both sound like fall lyrics, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. And I, that thing about um, there's not many other bands or artists that you could write a book like that or compile a book like that on because the fall, it's just such an intricate world, isn't it? And it and yeah. the, the group and, and the lyrics and the image, and I don't know, just everything, there's... There's such a range of influences all yeah. bubbling away at the same time, isn't there? And you can take any strand and give it a yeah. right good tug and there's lots that will come up just from that one strand, you know? Yeah. What I've found looking at the fall is they're always interesting. You might not – they might not always be good if, if, if depending on your taste in music. You, would, you know, there's a lot of people who don't like the fall and there's a lot of people who really like the fall. But I don't – I think it would be difficult to argue that they're not always interesting, I think. Mm. And in terms of writing and in terms of putting a book out, interesting will always trump good or bad, I think, because that's always an opinion, isn't it? But inter- I, mean, I suppose interesting is an opinion, but, you know, there's always something there with the fall that, you, you know, there's a thread you can pick at. Yeah. I think. Well, talking of threads, I've got a great, great little thread now that will lead us back to the magazine. Oh, I forgot about the magazine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if Sai's aware of this, but there's a 
a video like a, a or a kind of a promo film that the fool did called perverted by language biz no uh, perverted by music biz sorry no but no you were right first time no the biz is nothing to do it's biz as in business as in a um a slightly rude word for uh, poop oh, so it's right. perverted by language and lots of other shit basically <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and in it there's a I don't know, it's either a, a short poem or a short story that uh, Marky Smith wrote that's performed by uh, Alana Pillay. It's called The Confidence of Henry Glasspants. And like I say, it, it ties in very nicely with, with this issue of Smash Hits for a reason that will become very obvious in a minute. I'll just read it, it's very short. It says, um, Good evening. I'm a Sudan Arab agent in the pay of Baghdad. Kim Wilde doesn't get out to see many gigs, for the sun eats low-fat spread. Crazy normal about the stray cats after feast of tin tomatoes and cod. The ginger radio bully sausage spitefully refuses to play us. So there we go. A short poem stroke story, and the only two artists it mentions, Stray Cats and Kim Wilde. Spooky. Cover stars Spooky. of this issue. I didn't I didn't pick the issue for that issue for that reason, honestly. <laughs> Isn't that a bizarre, bizarre thing? I mean, and watching Lana Pile perform it is bizarre. It's just what? What? How can be Sudan are an agent and be in the pay of Baghdad? Sure, you're a Baghdad agent then, aren't you? And are we? There's nothing in that interview that says that Kim Wilde don't get out to many gigs, is there? I don't believe. Well, I, maybe she was too busy cooking meals for the rest of a band, or yeah, we'll do uh, it with tin tomatoes and cod, probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It doesn't say what she cooked, does it? So no. uh, maybe that was it. Right, it's a bonkers poem, isn't it? It is bonkers. And then this issue of Smash It's, well, the second part of this issue of Smash It's, so side B, uh, finishes with a, uh, the album reviews and various Smash It's writers having a look at the albums du jour. Uh, Richard Strange's album, The Phenomenal Rise of Richard Strange, uh, gets six and a half out of ten from Fred Dello. He says, um, the cover depicts the trilby-crowned futurist king casting a long <laughs> shadow on a screen. But judging by the contents of this album, Strange himself lives, like so many others, in the shadow of Bowie, his musical personality amounting to little more than Ziggy Stardust in a lounge suit. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> The Sparks album, which we've already uh, encountered, gets 6 out of 10 from uh, David Hepworth. Um, Deanne Pearson, although appearing not to like the Grace Jones album, she gives that 8 out of 10. Uh, that's Grace Jones' nightclubbing album. That's a brilliant album. That's a fantastic album. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge, huge Grace Jones fan, and yeah, I absolutely love that album. Uh, but the final album that gets reviewed in this issue is Toya's um, LP Anthem. Uh, Mark Allen having a look at this one. Uh, what Toya lacks in subtlety and in vocal and songwriting flexibility, a lot, she repays in sheer presence and dubious dress sense. <laughs> but this, but is this the stuff of lasting LPs? I fear not. You get 11 tracks set firmly on repeat. Stilted, over-theatrical structures, dreamy synthesizers, and the same marching backbeats while she milks all ancient cultures bone dry for <laughs> lyrics. She simply hasn't the talents required for such a grandiose vision. For haunting, read Pompous, three out of ten. Oh. <laughs> scathing. Scathing. Yeah, he's not normally very scathing, Mark Ellen, is he? He's normally quite sort of uh, mild-mannered, but he, he really had it in for that day, didn't he? It did, it did. But she made it to the front of Smash It's quite a few times. <laughs> she did. <laughs> I thought yeah. this uh, reviews page was quite worthy for the fact that there's a Psychedelic Furs album review, Talk, 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 and there's no mention of him sounding like Bowie. I think that's the first 
review I ever read of the psychedelic furs where there's no yeah. mention of Bowie at all. <laughs> it's funny how, the, how they haven't come up with New Romantic yet. Everything's still futurist, isn't it? Yes. Because it mentions futurist in the uh, Richard Strange one. It also says it in the uh, psych- uh, one of the others. The classics New Vol gets futurist as well. Less said about them, the better. <laughs> yeah, <it's> lousy. <laughs> So looking back uh, at this issue of the mag, and the only features that we get in there are um, Stray Cats and, and Kim Wilde, and it's um, reflections really on what their lives were like, you know, late teens, uh, early 20s, for, for both acts. Um, I think two of the Stray Cats were still 19 years old. So similar age to, to yourself, Paul, uh, at, at yeah. that time. And you know, stray cats have come over from the USA and making it big in the UK and being treated like you know music royalty wherever they go and getting screaming fans. And Kim Wilde hits the charts with her, her first single. But what was life like for you in the fall in 1981? Well, the thing about you got to remember about the fall is that when because that Slate EP is in the indie charts there. So if you'd have gone to see a fall gig around that time or at the same time. We'd probably have dropped a good portion of the Slate stuff by then and were playing, presumably by then we were playing stuff that was going to be on Hex Induction Hour, which would get recorded in the December of 81, because that was the way The Fall always worked. There was never a let's tour this album that we just put out, because that's what people want to hear. It was never that. So like I say, by then, new songs were creeping in that would, you know, that would be coming out later in the year. But the interesting thing about that is when this, when this came out, this issue, I was just about to sort of go on furlough from the fall because we did a tour of Europe and where Carl and I played on opposite nights. So I'd play one night, he'd play the next, just to get Carl ready because I did, the thinking was that I was too young to go and tour America, which came up slightly later in the year, in June, which is true probably. I mean, it, I don't know that I couldn't have got a work permit or whatever, but I think it would have been quite a daunting prospect for someone who was just about 17 to do that because it was the biggest tour the fall ever did before or after you know it was like 35 dates maybe in in a month and a half and it was full on and it was everywhere it was west coast down south up north so i think it would have been quite a big ask for me to do it and, and anyway i didn't i didn't end up going so they went without me which is okay um, i got over it and so what was being in the band was that a full-time job or were you having to you know had you got a job on the side and, and stuff it was a full it was a full it was a full-time job for everyone really except um one thing well, the one proviso when I joined because I joined in the March 1980 the month after I was 16 so I left school in the June I suppose after doing my O levels but Mark and Kay Kay was the manager Kay Carroll said you can't join unless you go back to college and do your A-levels. We're not going to be responsible for you losing your education at 16 years of age to be a, a dumb drummer in a band, uh, which was quite um, – I, I wasn't very happy about it, but I did it. Obviously, you were, I wasn't going to say, no, well, I won't join then because I would have ended up going back and doing my A-levels anyway. But um, So they, they made me do my A-levels, which I'll always be eternally grateful grateful for because I got an English A-level and I ended up doing an English degree years and years later, which led, then led into the writing. So whatever, I can, I, can, I can never thank them enough for that, which is strange. You wouldn't think that they'd be like that. They were, but I mean, Kay was quite maternal in that kind of way. And in an, in an estranged kind of way, Mark was slightly paternal as well. I was talking about this with someone. He was only probably, what, eight years older than me, maybe, something like that. 
it was he was a generation above me in terms of age and in terms of experience and in terms of knowledge well in terms of any kind of anything really so he felt it was kind of a slightly paternal well it was a boss and employee relationship and so avuncular i suppose would be the other word the way to look at it so yeah they maybe they maybe do me a levels it's very forward thinking isn't it yeah as you say not not something that you would expect from uh, from a rock and roll band particularly one like the fool but no he was, he was quite a contradictory guy, Mark, you know, and yeah. one of the things we try to do in this podcast is to show that there's a lot of a lot of stuff written about the fall, about what a hellish experience it was and what a terrible person Mark was. And the, 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 the whole idea of the podcast is to say it wasn't really like that at all. If you do an interview and someone asks you about that, then you're going to answer, but it wasn't like that, really. Hmm. So that was me in 1981. I read it, sat in my bedroom on my own, reading smash hits. <laughs> About the strikeouts while they <laughs> gallivanted around America. Do you, do you remember what you did with your time uh, off from the band? No, because I would, I, I, as I was, I was doing my A levels, but we broke up for summer while they were there as well. So no, I went to see the odd gig, went to see Iggy Pop at the Apollo, which was probably one of the best gigs I ever went to. But not enough compensation for going to New York and supporting the Clash at Bonds. But I've got over it now. I'm not bitter. <laughs> 24 years. <laughs> a lot of therapy, you know. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah. You're, you're through the other side. Yeah, I was very angry with the fall. There you go. 20,000 quid's worth of therapy have enabled me to say that. <laughs> and turning our attention back to that issue of Smashes and also the, the pop music of 1981. Uh, and it does feel that 1981 is where the 80s properly begin. Adam and is really the first big pop star of the 80s. And I guess, you know, you, you've had all the, the new wave stuff that's kind of fed into that, but it's finally filtered through and gone pop. Mm. And, you know, they've discovered the dressing up box. So you, you get Toya and Spandau Ballet, Duran Duran, who come around a little bit later in, in 81, I think it was. But, it, yeah, it feels like a real kind of um, transition it does. in 1981 and, and almost like a, drawing a line in the sand from, from what had gone on before, even though what had gone on before hugely informs what goes on that year. It feels like this is such a such a vibrant time for pop, and you can see it in these pages. Yeah, and you look at the gallery of the cover images from 1981, and you can see it being absolutely represented in Smash Hits. You know whether you know, Smash Hits fed into the changes that were happening in pop music, whether they were just reflecting it, or whether it was just that that relationship that just all, all came about at the same time, and they mm. all just blossomed together. It's it's hard, you know, it's hard to say which which it is. It's just how it happened. Well, I mean, that's true of all when you get these cultural movies. You can't tell whether the, the tail's wagging the dog, but, it, 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 you know, they, they kind of go hand in hand. But I think the, the the big lyric in there that you've got stand and deliver, you know, deep meaning philosophies where only showbiz uses. I think there was a, he was the kind of start of that where they sort of said, well, hang on, showbiz is all right, I think. It's okay to be a pop star. It's okay to give the audience what they want, which was kind of flip of the punk ethic, wasn't it? We're going to play this, and if you don't like it, you can pop. Oh, I mean, that's, you know, that was basically the Sex Pistols and the punk rock mood, whereas then I think, like you say, in 1981, there was a move to say, this is what people are going to want. Adam Ant, you know, has, has t- talked about being showbiz without shame. You know, he, he made a conscious decision to move away from that punk thing, didn't he? Mm. And everyone followed him, and Smash Hits was right on the cusp of that, I think. Which is why it was great, you know. It was exciting then, pop music, wasn't it? Yeah, but it also still feels like they, they were doing it themselves as well. That that punk ethic still carries through. Yeah, I mean that's that's the Duran Duran thing, isn't it? 
the Jean Duran thing is cross between the Sex Pistols and Chic, you know, so you've got that Jamie Reed sort of, you know, that whole thing of do it yourself, put a gig on, but you've also got the glitz of Studio 54 kind of thing, you know. That's that's where it went, I think. If you took the best of both of them, that's what you end up with. You might not necessarily end up with the best band, you know, if you, but uh, that's the way it moved, I think, and there was a lot of glamour that came in. After, I think people were a bit fed up of wearing, you know, bin bags and tartan trousers. <laughs> And that's the thing, I think you were getting the eccentrics and the art school students going and consciously trying to make mainstream pop and, and kind of being showbiz, but doing it through their own slightly odd filter. And yeah. that's what made it so exciting. It wasn't kind of managed and it wasn't sort of stage school people that were told how to do it. They were making it up as they went along. And that's yeah. where the energy and the fizz and the excitement in it all comes from, isn't it? Which is kind of something you've lost now, I think. Well, it's mm. all stage school, school now, isn't it? It seems to be. And it goes hand in hand with, you know, you can't make money. So they're all sort of stage school, wealthy parents. I mean, this is a, you know, sweeping generalisation, but it seems to be now that there's a level of sheen about acts these days. And, you know, even if you look at any kind of band, indie band, they're all fabulous musicians. You know, you know, you wouldn't, the, the days when you got a, you know, even if you look at the Spice Girls, you have the Spice Girls, you've got one of them, at, you know, one or two of them that can't sing, you know. But the, now I don't think you would. I don't think you'd get a girl band or a boy band with one of the members who just looked nice or was a fairly decent dancer. They're all, they'll all be brilliant musicians, you know, musicians. They'll all be brilliant dancers and they'll all be great singers because that's the way it seems to have gone now. It seems to be like stage schools taking over everything. But that's just because I'm an old man. <laughs> well, yeah, so me, but you know, it feels like everything's got to be polished to the nth yes. degree, and and there's none of those rough edges or that um, making up as you're going along DIY kind of feeling that that there is in you know in 1981. I mean, certainly in the pop charts. I mean, I'm sure it all goes on under the covers. I'm sure there's lots of people picking up a guitar for the first time, or probably more likely picking up a computer and doing something for the first time, but. The every there seems to be a level of competence in the pop charts now, which is just you don't get sort of quirky things that where it's just some bloke banging it, you know, like the, the flying pickets where it's some bloke banging a biscuit tin singing, uh, you know, money or whatever. <laughs> Did I say the flying pickets then? It's not the flying pickets, is it? Who sang money? No, it's flying lizards. Flying lizards, yes. <laughs> flying pickets were a different kind of crap, weren't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much to today's special guest, Paul Hanley. I hope you've enjoyed your little ride on the carousel, Paul. Loved it. Loved it. Good. If you want me, if you want me back, I'd love to do it again sometime. <laughs> we didn't go too fast for you. No, 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 no. Perfect speed, that. Yeah, oh, no, right, not, not close to throwing up. I can still have some cockles and welts on my way back to the seafront. So, uh, leave the capital and have a bleeding guess. And then, oh, exclamation mark, brother is the podcast that you're doing with your brother, Steve about the fall as well, which uh, people can find uh, wherever you get podcasts from. So, yeah, Paul, thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to check out our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, where you'll also find links to the issue of Smash It's that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists, so you can enjoy your ride on the carousel to the full. And, of course, you can check out our previous episodes, playlists and scans, our back issues, if you will, while you're there. And if you want to support us by buying us a coffee, we'll be forever in your debt. If you go to coffee.com forward slash giddypoppod, that's where you can do that. That's ko-fi.com 
forward slash giddypotpod ko-fi.com forward slash giddypotpod and do come and say hello to us of course at giddypotpod on Twitter Facebook and Instagram and we'll say hello back so thanks once again for listening and we'll see you next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop bye 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 bye